These four Sundays leading up to this evening, we have been on a journey here at Marvin Church. It's called the season of Advent, a season where we remember and rehearse the comings of Christ, who came once and his birth we've gathered to celebrate. Christ comes repeatedly through the power of his Holy Spirit and the proclamation of his word, and Christ will come again and final and triumphant victory, and we are so hopeful in his return. The remembering and rehearsing of those truths is stirred by prophetic imagination, and all four Sundays we've been with this journey with this uh, prophet Isaiah, reading from his prophecy. A good prophet re-engineers imagination and stirs in you those longings that you didn't even have words for. A good prophet gives you those words, and Isaiah's done that for us. C.S. Lewis is a good prophet on his own right, in that he stirred up longings in your heart that only the gospel could fulfill. And if you've ever read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, you may have experienced that for yourself. This sense of longing, this stirring deep down within. It's right there in the title from the very beginning. Before we even read the first sentence, we're looking for him, this lion. And in chapter one, we're introduced to the wardrobe. Chapter two, we're introduced to the white witch. You'd expect that in chapter three, we meet this lion, but we don't. We read chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, still no lion. Then in chapter seven, it's almost like C.S. Lewis is teasing us. Peter Edmund, Susan, Lucy, these children in the book, the main characters, they've entered into Narnia through this wardrobe. And they discover that in Narnia, it is always winter, always cold, never Christmas. Can you imagine Never Christmas? That would be awful. They're lost in the woods, these children are, and all of a sudden they see something to the left behind, a light post, furry with whiskers. It's a beaver who motions with his paw as if to say, shh. And then this beaver begins to talk. But more amazing than a talking beaver is what this beaver has to say. Aslan is on the move. In fact, he may have already landed. Now, all it takes is the mention of his name, and there's something stirring inside of each child. Peter suddenly feels adventurous and brave. Edmund has this feeling of darkness and sheer horror that overcomes him with the thought of Aslan the lion. Susan has this feeling like the aroma of something sweet and beautiful in her nose. And Lucy, she has that feeling of waking up on the first day of holiday, remembering there's no school today. It's like Christmas break. They begin talking about Aslan, this one who's stirring such emotions in the children, wondering, who is Aslan? What is Aslan? They want to know. We're halfway before the book before we get any straight answers. There they are gathered around the table in Beaver's home. These children are learning more and more about this one known as Aslan. And Beaver says, I tell you, he's the king. He's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Is he safe? Lucy asks. 
I'd be rather nervous meeting a lion. Safe, Beaver responds. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you, and tomorrow you'll meet him at Stone Table. And deep inside these four children is this mix of emotion, the longing to meet the one who stirred these things inside of them. I know that you can relate to that stirring whenever you've been in God's presence, whenever you've been in front of something good. And the reason we have these feelings is because we know there are bad things out there. We know there are things that are just not right with this world. We live in a broken and messy world, but there's hope for unto us a child is born. Help me, unto us a son is given. We see this hope throughout the pages of Scripture. We see brokenness in Scripture as well. This hope is stirred by prophetic imagination, a yearning within, a hunger for more. Isaiah 9 is ripe with messianic prophecies that stir hunger in us and point to the one who makes all things right. And while those certainly are messianic prophecies, Isaiah lived in a particular time within a specific cultural context. Zebulun and Naphtali were two tribes referred to in Isaiah 9-1 known as Galilee of the nations. These two tribes were between the capital of Israel and the Syrian border, land that was coveted for at least a couple of reasons. Number one, Fighting in that region kept it away from capital and major population centers. Secondly, and maybe more important, this land contained a strategic advantage worth fighting for. Trade routes leading to, from, and around the Sea of Galilee. To be sure, this region where Isaiah is speaking into is a waylaid and war-torn region. But there's so much more than messianic hope and promise in Isaiah 9. Or better said, that messianic hope runs so much deeper than a child is born. Some scholars suggest that this text was written for the installation of Hezekiah as the king of Judah. Others suggest this piece was written in anticipation of an unknown king to be born after 732 B.C., providing stability for Judah after Israel's deportation into Assyria. Either way, as part of a ritualistic ceremony, these words were not merely written for the future. They were also written for the then-present about a king who would be a source of real and tangible hope for a people who were reeling from the ravages of strife and war. Oh, there is hope. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Let's fast forward 700 years to the birth of Christ, where things were not much better than they were during Isaiah's time. Admittedly, we don't associate the gospel of Mark with Christmas, but we do see the advent of the Christ, the arrival of the Christ in those words. Mark does not tell the birth narrative like Matthew or Luke 
but he emphasizes the importance of Christ's coming, speaking directly into this cultural moment that he was born into, Pax Romana, Roman peace. And the opening of Mark's gospel is making a declaration to the Roman Empire that this is the dawn of something new. All of history has been pointing to this moment, and all of history will be transformed by this moment. The whole of God's story has been building up to this, and now we are at the beginning of what? The beginning of the good news. And some of your Bibles use the word gospel, which was culturally tied to an announcement in the Roman Empire, the gospel of Caesar, the good news that Caesar was on the throne bringing peace, a very efficient peace because there was no peace in the Roman Empire. You submitted or you were made to submit. It was an efficient peace because if you did not submit, the boot of the Roman soldier would be on your neck. But it was not effective at all. Mark is subtly and subversively confronting Caesar's gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, a title connected to the type of king people were hoping for. Jesus was born into this era of Roman peace, and he flipped everything upside down, turned everything inside out. He offered a peace that is very inefficient, and yet to those of us who have received it, we know that it is very effective, this peace. Mark's declaration of Jesus as Messiah is a moment of kingdom confrontation. Caesar's reign was empty and weak. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is the one true king. And this was seen as blasphemy, an act of treason in the Roman Empire. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Julius Caesar died some 40 years before Jesus was born. And it was said that when he died, there was a comet seen in the sky, thought that Caesar himself had become like a god, lowercase g, which means that his heir apparent, adopted as he was, Augustus Caesar, was like a son of this god. This was lifted up for political allegiance, religious worship, and Mark is making a statement here about the divine nature of Jesus, who is far greater than any Caesar, far greater. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That is the Christmas story according to Mark. Merry Christmas. Aren't you glad you came to church? Y'all, this is a broken and messed up world we live in. But there's hope. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Earlier this semester, early in September, Leanne woke me up in the middle of the night. What was that? Now, I don't have any trouble falling asleep. I have trouble staying asleep. So if it had been like 3.17, I might have heard it too. 11.15, what was that? And I'm out cold. Mark, sounded like something just dropped. Go check it out. And I'm thinking, want to say, you go. 
But I stumbled into the bathroom to check things out and there was nothing. I fumbled my way into the living room and everything was fine. Walked into the dining room where I can look through the window and see out to the street. And I see flashing lights off to my left and about that time, there's a knock on our door, 11.15. And I'm the one who's up I mean, when the solicitors come, Leanne answers because she can talk. I'm like tongue-tied about it all. So I go to the door and peer out the window, and there's this young man who's standing there. Will you let me in? No. Can you help me? I've ruined my life. And I think to myself like, I want to help, but it's night. Wait. Don't move. And I go around the corner where Leanne is already on the phone with 911, what's your emergency, trying to explain, we don't know what's happened, but someone's at our door. Can you come and just make sure that he's okay, that we're okay? And they send someone, and by that time, we're like looking out the window together, mustering the courage to go out. This guy's no longer there. He's walking towards the Jeep, which is in our front yard. It's not in the street. This guy had driven down the street, which is aimed directly at our house, dropped his cell phone in the floorboard, bends over to pick it up, and doesn't miss the bend at the beginning of our yard. The street turns and so he jumps the curb, comes into our yard, misses our basketball goal, misses Marcus's car, misses our house, drives along our circle driveway, misses my truck and our mailboxes, and hits the tree between our yard house and the neighbor's house. We start talking to this guy willing to wait with him until everything calms down and clears up. And so we wait while Tyler Police Department writes their report. We wait while EMTs come and check him out. We wait while his girlfriend comes and is his ride home. We all wait until that tow truck with the Jeep on the flatbed drives away. By now, it is the middle of the night. There is chaos that swirls all around us. That was a mess of an evening, and dare I say, not a one of us slept well that night. This is a broken and messy world that we live in. We're not even talking about the things that are going on currently speaking. Chaos all around that disrupts life and wreaks havoc among us. It's costly and inconvenient. And we're talking about the war between Ukraine and Russia, war in Israel and Hamas, civil war in the Sudan. No one's talking about that. We're talking about global warming, artificial intelligence warnings. We're within a year of more political turmoil and division haven't even scratched the surface yet of our own brokenness. Divorce, disease, 
despair, addiction, a spouse who is emotionally absent, marriages hungry for enrichment, parents concerned for the well-being of their children, parents concerned for the aging of their parents, grief of any and every kind, and sometimes chaos knocks at your door at 11.15 in the middle of the night. But there's hope. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Who or what do you put your hope in? Is it a political ideology or leader? Is it a false sense of peace or justice that military might and prowess bring? Is it the advent of technology that promises to make life better? Is it some medicine that promises to bring healing and wholeness? Is it possessions? Is it position? Is it security? Here's the thing about hope. It reflects the heart. Who or what you put your hope in reveals who is seated on the throne of your heart. And that is a seat that was revealed for one and only. His name is Jesus. He was born into this world, laid in a manger. Jesus lived and died a brutal death, raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and when he did, because Jesus ascended, he went from being someone on the outside of us to the one who lives inside of those who realize their need and repent and receive the gift of his presence that's salvation. Christ in you, walking around in your shoes as if he were living your life. Jesus Christ. And there's only one thing left for him to do. During Advent, we remember and rehearse his comings. He's come once, he comes repeatedly. There's only one thing left, one part of our story that remains, and we anticipate his triumphant return. The season of Advent, the celebration of Christmas, is merely dress rehearsal for that which is ultimate, all that is true, his final return. And so tonight, if you need hope, Please know there is a God who sees you. He loves you. And his name is Jesus. That one is on the move. And because you have hope, please know that it doesn't terminate on you. We are those who bring this light of life, this love, this hope out into the chaos of this crazy, broken, messy world. It's on you and me, Christ in you and in me. That's the good news of this baby born, this son given. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we...
turn to you. Oh, Lord, longing for your presence. And so as we've heard this message of hope, this gospel truth, and prepare to come to feast on your presence, would you feed us with that hope that we might offer it to the world? Come, Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray.